Grace, mercy, and the peace of our God be with you this day. Amen. So I'm normally a person that enjoys working outside. I enjoy, you know, getting down in the dirt. I don't mind cutting the grass. Pulling the weeds is not on the top of my list. But I do it. Trim the trees, cleaning up the yard, making it look nice. I enjoy it. Grew up with some acreage, so I learned to use the tools when I was pretty young. Our first house had two acres, so I needed a chainsaw. Still have it. Still runs. Since moving here, I bought the chainsaw on the pole so I could get where the palm tree branches are always coming out. In a few weeks, Palm Sunday, I'll probably cut a few more big palm leaves off my trees and put them here behind the altar like I've done the last couple years because I need to get rid of them. <laughs> so I normally enjoy this kind of work and just the feel of it and, you know, getting the dirt under the fingernails. But lately, not a lot of motivation. You know, just didn't really feel like getting out there. So sometime around two weeks ago, Paula said to me, you know, I spend a lot of time in the yard. A lot of days she sits in the backyard and just, you know, enjoys being out there in the outside. And she said, I look around and it, it doesn't look so good. And she was right. Because <laughs> I looked around and I thought, wow, the grass is kind of long and the leaves are still kind of piled up. When we first moved into our house, there was um, pe people who had been contracted to do that work at that address. And even though the for sale sign was in the yard, and then it said sale pending probably, and then it said sold, and then it disappeared, they kept coming. For a while, I didn't, I think it was like shoemaker's elves. Like we'd get home and the grass would be short and the leaves would be gone. And it's like, wow, this is, this is tremendous. We have good neighbors, I guess. I don't know. Then we got a bill, um, which we paid. So they kept coming. And eventually we, you know, saw them and I talked to them. Well, with droughts and whatever, you know, kind of scaled back some of the service because things weren't growing. And then at some point over the last two years, they stopped coming. And the way that we always worked it out, they would give us the invoice in an envelope and we put the check in the envelope and put it in the mail. Never a phone number. And we never kept the address. I don't know how to get a hold of them if I want to, to say, come back, do the work again. There's others on our street. I could just go talk to somebody who's cutting one of the neighbors, which Paula was ready to do. But I had said, you know, they kind of quit. I'll do it. But I hadn't. So then I did it. After she said, you know, it's, it doesn't look so good. I fired up the lawnmower, and I cut the grass, and I got out the weed eater, and I got it started again after some time. My blower, got that going. Gas plower blower. <laughs> right? I used all the loud tools because I wanted everybody in the house to know, <laughs> maybe even neighbors, that I was cutting the grass and making the yard look good. I wanted credit. You know, you ever do that? 
You ever make sure that what you're doing is noticed, that the effort that you're making doesn't go unseen? Like, while I'm washing the dishes? Sometimes we do that. A couple of weeks ago, as we started Red Letter Challenge, the week was being that we were going into. And we actually began with this question, who are you? Who are you? And immediately after this point was made, what we do flows from who we are. And we talked about that in terms of being, and now that we reach the week of serving, we need to circle back and make sure we still have that firmly in our minds. What we do flows from who we are. Our identity remains of primary importance. Even when I do it begrudgingly, (laughs) or to make sure that it's noticed, still that's work that I don't mind doing. It's part of who I am. But there's a reason that serving isn't first on the list of targets that Red Letter Challenge identifies because serving needs to flow from identity even though that sometimes we get our, our identity from the things that we do. In our relationship with God, our doing needs to start with our being. Make sense? Understand that? I mean, Ephesians 2 and 9 tells us who we are. It tells us that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. So that we can't go, <clears throat> God, look at what I'm doing. So, you know, pay attention to me, Lord. Make sure that I'm saved here because look at what I'm doing. Right? We're all on the same level. We're sinners in need of redemption who have received the grace of Jesus. So our first target in this red letter challenge was being, that we need to be, to be disciples of Jesus, to be, to be in Christ, to be that new creation that God has made through the grace that he gives us. That is our, our primary identity as believers and followers of Jesus. So that's who we are. But now, we can agree to this, actions speak louder than words. We've just confessed the creed, spoken, and then we confess the creed in song. We have shared words about our identity. This I believe, right? I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the resurrection. These are primary importance for us, for who we are. But now, what do we do about it? It doesn't mean that we don't do things that were saved by grace through faith, not by works. It doesn't mean, okay, now let's bring the couch out that we had and sit on it and go, okay, I'm good. Put my feet up, right? I don't have to take care of any of it. I don't have to do anything. Now, in terms of salvation, that's true. You don't have to do anything to be saved. But God doesn't want us sitting on the couch, All the time. Sometimes, yeah, we need to rest. Don't get me wrong. It's not like, yeah, yeah, I got to go do now. But here's what James 2 says. Faith without works is dead. Ooh, yikes. (laughs) 
He goes on in James 2. We can't say to someone, go in peace, be warm and filled um, to a person who has physical needs. You know, a person who's needing clothing or food. Oh, go be warm and well-fed and send them on their way. Go do that. Like, we meet their needs. When all is said and done, let's make sure more is done than said. Or, to quote an old country song, a little less talk and a lot more action. We need to take action. We need to put the words into practice. That was part of what we talked about at the very beginning of this whole process, is that we hear the words, we put them into practice in order to be like the wise man building his house on the rock. What do those actions look like? See, our identity leads to action. Have you heard this before? Attitude is everything. I talked about in work environments, in business circles, attitude is everything. If we have a a positive attitude, then things should go better for us. If we have a negative attitude, then a lot of times things go poorly for us. Right? And it makes sense. And it's true. Your mindset affects what you do. As much as our action is born from our identity, our actions also flow from how we think. So let's talk about the mind of Christ. Jesus was a humble servant. We heard from Philippians chapter 2 about that. We also read Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 20. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We know that verse pretty well probably. Heard it before, I would suspect. That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. But the context of that verse is also important to make note of. See, Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, which is kind of a strange way to say it, but that's how it's said in in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, This is James and John, right? Those are the sons of Zebedee, and their mother comes to Jesus with this request. Hey, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, let one be on your right and one on your left. That would be cool. (laughs) That's kind of a loose translation. That's what sets up Jesus saying that about came not to be served, but to serve. Mom was asking for the sons to have positions of power. We all want authority, we want power, we want recognition, at least at some level. You know, not everybody wants to be on the stage, not everybody wants to be up front, but at some point we do want that recognition, right? It's why we cut the grass with the loud tools. (laughs) It's why we do things that get us noticed from time to time. It's why in our, you know, career paths, we want the kudos, We want the boss to pay attention to what we're doing. We want the manager to notice, and maybe there's a promotion or when it comes time for the the annual review. We want that to just be smooth sailing because, hey, look at all the things that I've done. I mean, even if it's just the quiet review one-on-one in the office, we still want the boss to say, well done, good and faithful employee. Well done. 
When I was working as an engineer, I worked for a company named Landis Gardner. We made centerless grinding machines. And um, through a whole series of events, I worked for one company that got bought out and split up and worked for then a different company. And there had been this kind of group of people from the first company that started another one, and we all ended up working together again. And the chief engineer was a guy from that other company who'd gone away for a while and came back, and then he was the chief engineer. So there were people who were like, why is he chief engineer? He was pretty good, actually. He was a good boss. Well, he went off to do something else got recruited by a competitor or something, I can't remember, but he was leaving, which meant there was a, a, a hole, a vacancy. We needed a chief engineer. And for a couple of minutes, I thought, oh, maybe I should put my name in that hat. Why not? I could be the chief engineer. I was like this level engineer, right? But I, I aspired to that office, to that place. He had a door I had a cubicle. He had a person who like, was right outside his office that would do things. I had a guy in the next cubicle, and we would talk about who was going to go get the coffees. Right? Maybe I should apply. Maybe I could be the chief. No, I couldn't. I, then I got that same feeling that you get when you're like in, in high school and you think there's a girl that's kind of cute and maybe I, maybe I should talk. No, I shouldn't talk to her. <laughs> and that same kind of feeling, uh, I'm just going to get rejected. So I didn't apply, but I aspired to it. I had that desire. These two disciples had been with Jesus from the beginning when their mom comes to ask about that position. Did they prompt her to do it, or did she just do it on her own? We don't know. I mean, what, what mom doesn't want her boys to do well? Of course. But these guys have been with Jesus from the beginning. They should know at some point. This is Matthew 20, right? There's not many chapters left. They should know that this isn't Jesus' purpose to, you know, show up with authority and power and put people in in charge. That's not how this is going to go down. But mom comes anyway and asks the question. Here's a couple guys with seniority, with experience. They're ready. But Jesus reminds them, it would seem that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. See, Jesus modeled through his life and his ministry acts and attitudes of humility. He served patiently teaching, and visiting, and you know, teaching through these parables to people who continuously didn't get it. Now, If they had understood everything from day one, would they have continued to follow Jesus? That's a question for another time. Maybe it was kept from them until the Spirit came so they wouldn't go, wow, I don't think I want to be on this team. Because where Jesus was going would not have matched where any of them or any of us 
would have expected. This is the Son of God who comes not in power, but in humility. I mean, who wants to follow the humble leader? Who wants to follow the guy who knows he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified? Oh, let's get on that train. Probably not. We want the guy who's going to show up on the, you know, on the powerful horse with the army, with everything, with, you know, stuff rolling into town. Let's take this. That's who we naturally would want to get behind. But the humble, eh, I don't know. He healed all the people who came. He continued to be with crowds until he was physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally spent, poured out. And he kept giving and going and healing and teaching and speaking until he'd have to get away. But he poured out his life. Time and again, he gave all that he had, and our attitude should be the same. That's what Philippians 2 describes at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind, this common way of thinking, which is a whole lot like Jesus thinks. This whole red letter challenge is about following the red letters, the words of Jesus, and putting them into practice so that we can be more and more like him, so that we can, through our attitudes, our actions, our thoughts, our patterns, we can be like Jesus. So how are we to think? Think like Jesus. It's a little different from the power of positive thinking, with all due respect to Norman Vincent Peale. It's not quite positive. There's good stuff in positive thinking, right? Think positively, positive things happen. It makes sense. But Paul describes how we are to think in the prior two verses. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look not to your own interests. We live in a culture that is fixated on our own interests, right? This is what we pay attention to most. Burger King captured this just, I don't know, some years ago now, their slogan, have it your way, right? That's what we want. I want to have it my way. I want to be able to sing that song, right? I did it my way. For all this stuff, I did it my way. I pulled myself up by the bootstraps. I accomplished. I did. I got the recognition that I deserved. I achieved. Boom. My way. That's not the way Jesus thought. Our consumer mindset shows up pretty regularly, right, in our lives and in the way we respond. Scrolling social media, I was sometime in the last couple of weeks, and I saw a post from a person I know, you know, he's on my list of friends. We know each other. We're acquainted. I don't know how close we might be as friends. But the post said this, this is why I haven't returned to church. He's not a member here, so don't worry. Um, I found, you know, leaders or preachers or something, 
with whom I can agree theologically, but the music is terrible. Okay. Just because the music isn't what you want or up to a certain level or standard, I don't, don't exactly understand. And I think there was something posted about praise courses and repetition, and it's the same old worn-out criticism of praise music, right? But I thought, really? So keeping you from the fellowship and from the interaction and from the learning and from the discipleship and from all the benefits of the church and the relationships with the people is the music. How consumer-driven mindset is that? How, like, okay, well, I'm not going to participate because it's not exactly catering to my have-it-your-way attitude. Have this mindset. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit or consumerism or personal, you know, preference. But participate. Do. Get involved. See, Jesus constantly put the need of the other ahead of his own. He gave and served without prejudice. He helped the poor, the needy, the broken. He laid down his life for you, for me, for people who were his enemies, not not his friends. Even for those times we've acted in selfishness and we've let our consumer attitude completely take over our thought patterns and then our actions. But in all, we have received his grace. You are saved by grace through faith, not from the things that you do. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but verse 10 tells us this. We are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship. This is what verse 10 says. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Serving is how we are wired. That's built into us. Have you heard of, have you heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Maslow's, I don't know how to say his name. It's the pyramid, right, with needs. The bottom level is the very basic. It's physical needs. We need air and water and food and shelter. If you don't have those things, you don't do anything else. It's survival mode, right? That's the very basic need that we have. That's physical needs. Beyond that is security. We need to feel secure. We need to feel safe. We need to Make sure that, you know, we're protected. These things make sense. This is almost like, duh. (laughs) But the guy's name is in the, you know, the psychology books because he put him in a pyramid. Past that, we have relational needs. We need to have family or friends or people who care about us. We need to extend care to other people. The basic version of the hierarchy of needs then follows with esteem, And then self-actualization. But there's an expanded version from the same author. He adds cognitive needs, aesthetic needs, and finally, very top of the pyramid, transcendence. Transcendence needs, which are like the top level, once all these other things are met, right? The top level 
Transcendence includes faith and service to others. Once our needs are met, once we're comfortable in life, once we have what we need, etc., we get to a point where we need, not just want or are called to or are gifted toward, but we need to serve and express faith. That's the highest level that we can reach. So we are work, uh, the workmanship of God and obedience is important. John chapter 15, which is the the vine and the branches section. We have heard that read this morning. Verse 10 says this, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We keep the commandments. We obey our God. Not that we earn it. We're still loved when we're disobedient. But we're obedient because we've received that love from God. Today happens to be Max's birthday, turning 24 today. And so over the course of the last 24 years, we've been parenting. And parenting involves telling kids what to do and expectations of obedience. Obedience is important in that relationship. Obedience is important in the relationship with the boss or the manager or the you know, commanding officer to the soldier. Obedience is what creates you know, a sense of order and connection, and we can do things and get things done. There are expectations in that relationship. There's expectations in our relationship with God. I don't love my kids because they're obedient. Doesn't hurt. God doesn't love us because we're obedient, but living in that love, abiding, like Jesus says, in that love, we obey. Obedience is important. Do the things that you're commanded to do. Be humble. John chapter 13, verse 5. This is the most incredible example of humility that we can find. He, that's Jesus, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is the Son of God. Not long before he was going to be crucified. Most of the time on Monday, Thursday, we remember the, the Lord's Supper and the, the eating and the breaking the bread and drinking the wine and it's the Passover and all the things that are happening connected with that, which is all very important. But in that time, in that same meal, there was this time where Jesus you know, wrapped the towel around, got the basin of water, and went around and washed the disciples' feet. Simon Peter's like, oh, no, 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 hold on. Don't wash my feet. And Jesus is like, if I don't wash your feet, you've got no connection to me, no part with me. And Peter, being Peter, is like, well, then wash my head and my hands. Let's, let's do this. The Son of God washing the disciples' feet gives us the ultimate example of humility in service. That's what we can follow. That's a model for us so that we can, like Jesus, serve without expectation. Luke chapter 14. Jesus is eating a meal with, I think it's a Pharisee. 
And he teaches this way, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And in verse 14, beginning of it, and you will be blessed. So you get a lot of times, who do we invite? Well, maybe we can get an invitation back. Maybe there's a reciprocal relationship. Jesus calls us to be the kind of people that give without expectation, that serve without expecting to be served. If we're always just connecting with friends, with those who are easy to serve in terms of our, our offering of what we do, right? If I only cut the grass at my own house and, you know, blah, 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 run my blower, but that's a, I never get outside the fence. Not that I'm going to cut everybody's grass. Don't, don't get on my list, right? But if I only, you know, am doing things in the perimeter of my own property, or then serving people that I can expect, well, if I blow his driveway off, then he's going to take care of my dog or something. And a reciprocal relationship might happen. Jesus is talking to us about, hey, give it away and don't expect anything back at all. 2011, there was a tornado. It happened to be on our anniversary, May 24th that year. Um, we lived in Oklahoma at the time, so tornadoes were not uncommon, but this was going to be a big one. They were talking about it for two or three days ahead of it. They were like, conditions looking like there might be a tornado, and it's the kind of like forecast that you pay a lot of attention to. So that day, somewhere around maybe 10 or 11 in the morning, sure enough, southwestern Oklahoma, this storm was starting up. They were right. And before long, they were like, it's, it's starting to, you know, cycle, and then it was a tornado, it was on the ground. And for like two hours, this thing was just heading straight toward where we lived, right? Tornadoes, you can kind of draw a line, they go northeast, and the line that it was tracking on was like literally heading right for us. So we remember that day because Drew was really little, and we thought, he doesn't know phone numbers, addresses, he knows his name. But I don't know. We had a Sharpie. We were ready to write on his skin so that he could be identified if we got separated somehow. I mean, we're just like, what do we do? This is the big one. It was an EF5, which is the top of the scale. There's no worse tornado. Heading right for us. Thankfully, about, I don't know, 45 minutes to our west in tornado traveling time, it ticked just a little bit north. So it was on this track, and all of a sudden it went, and started moving a little bit further north. Missed us a few miles to our west. Went north of us um, toward, through a little town called uh, Piedmont Guthrie, and I forget what else. Anyway, a few days later, gathered some people, went out, just drove out to where the tornado happened. Red Cross was already there, giving tetanus shots to anybody who showed up. I got out my power tools. I went to find somebody we could help. Found a person whose like, mobile home had just been wiped off the foundation. It was just bare concrete, and there was all this stuff kind of strewn around, and we just started collecting things and piling it up. And I tell you this story not to say, look at me and what I've done, but to tell you this part of it. I don't know their names. I don't know who they were. We never contacted each other after that again. Why? 
Because that wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing was to help them get through this devastating moment. How can we help people whose names we don't even know? How can we connect with people and support them and love on people without expectation? We want to build the church. We want to connect with people around us and help people become disciples of Jesus. But there are people down here at this level of need who need to be warm and well-fed. They're not ready for, hey, let's get involved and be disciples, right? Let's serve them. And how can we support people who are in need of security? And how can we love on people who are in need of relationship? That's where we can start to connect people to Jesus, But through it all, what are people's needs? And let's support people wherever they are, whatever their need is, without expectation. Ultimately, for the purpose of building the kingdom of God, because we're called to do that, right? But one way we do that is through our service, through loving people who are are near us, who are around us. And And we can recognize this, our acts of service are for the Lord. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is teaching again, and he says this, the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This is where Jesus was talking about the cup of cool water, you know, or you visit the, the people in the prison, and all these little things that, that they did, and, and you know, this is in a parable, right? And the king says, well, you know, what you did to the least of these, you did it to me. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. How can you serve? Whom can you serve? There are opportunities to serve the Lord in our lives all the time. I know people who are quietly serving really regularly. Can you serve? Can you do? Can you do it without expectation and fanfare and recognition? Serve the Lord. Begin with the attitude of Jesus and be his hands and feet. Amen.